for your promptness to return to your seats, and I now ask for your quiet attention, and we'll call upon our brother Mark O'Grady of Tawa, New Zealand Ecclesia. The theme for brother Mark's classes this week is, All the Tithe is Holy, and today's class is entitled, Will a Man Rob God? Brother Mark. Good morning, brothers and sisters. As I said to the brothers meeting yesterday, that's something that's taken me a few days, I'm sorry, to get used to, because the idea of saying good morning and getting a good morning back is not something we do at home, so I'm a slow learner, I'm sorry, but we'll get there yet. Well, in our studies so far, we've looked at the, the positive aspects of the principles of the tithe. We've seen that the tithe represents our contribution to the work of ecclesial life and also to caring for our brothers and sisters. And we, we've seen it, the happy, happy picture of a, of a committed and industrious Israel, with each person faithfully bringing along their tithe to support the work of the truth. Today's study is different. Today's study asks the question, what happens if I don't bring my tithe? What happens if a man or a woman steals from God? You see, if we lose sight of our indebtedness to God, if we, if we don't have an appreciation for the wonderful things that God's given us, then we won't want to give things back to God. And when that happens, we steal from God. And so this morning's study is about soul searching. Actually, to use the analogy of Scripture, it's about searching for the thief. It's about looking at the subject and ourselves and asking the question, Lord, is it I? Now, the first reference to this aspect of tithing is actually found in the book of Leviticus. Let's go back now to Leviticus chapter 27. In fact, there's only one reference to the subject of tithing in the whole book of Leviticus, and it's significant that we find it right at the end. The book of Levi actually finishes with a section on the tithe. It's the summation, as it were, of all the principles of holiness under the law. And it is significant that after going through all the detailed establishments of the, of the principles of Levitical law, it wraps the whole lot together with the statement of holiness of the tithe and its association with God. So in Leviticus 27, the last few verses, verse 30, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is Yahweh's. It is holy unto Yahweh. It's hallowed. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto Yahweh. He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. And the book finishes, these are the commandments which Yahweh commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. So the book of Leviticus wraps to a conclusion with this fascinating little section on the principles of the tithe. Now this little section we've just read actually highlights two specific things, two different features or events. The first in verse 31 is the subject of redemption. The second, in verses 32 and 33, is the subject of substitution. 
So let's first of all look at this theme in verse 31, the theme of redemption. What happens to the tithe of the fruits of the land if the Israelite desperately needed the produce that had been supplied by the land that year? I mean, for example, what happened if the grape harvest failed? Very few harvests, very few grapes harvested that year. Insufficient grapes to be able to make wine to last for the forthcoming year. And it's wonderful to note that in such circumstances, the law was actually flexible. The rule of law here is not harsh. And if there was a pressing need to hold back a particular form of the tithe, God was merciful and reasonable. And he actually allowed the tithe to be redeemed. But if you had a pressing need and you decided to redeem a portion of the tithe, there were, however, two very important provisos that were attached to it. The first is that the basic principle of tithing still stands absolute. The tithe still must be given. The tithe still belongs to God. It doesn't avoid the tithe. It merely converts it into a different form. So if you needed to redeem the tithe, it wasn't that you didn't have to give the tithe. It just needed to be converted into a different form. And then secondly, and very interesting to note, is that if because of some human need, we do have to redeem the tithe and offer in its place some other thing, there's a cost. So we read there in verse 31, If a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part. So the tithe he finally paid was actually 120%. It was 20% higher or a fifth part higher than it had been previously. Now, what are the principles that we can glean out of that for us personally in life today? Simply this. Number one, we have a fixed, unavoidable obligation to pay the tithe. It must always be paid. But sometimes, due to pressing commitments or necessities in life, we're unable to give it in a certain form. So let's talk about Ecclesia Life. It may not have been possible for us to attend the pamphlet delivery on Saturday because we were unwell, or perhaps away or out of town. It might not have been possible for us to extend a generous financial hand in support of a brother or sister because we're in severe financial hardship ourselves. It may not have been possible for us to go out to Bible class as a whole family because we've got a little child and it's the middle of winter and the child is not well. Now, all of those, of course, are very genuine reasons. And sometimes we are unable to deliver the tithe in terms of our personal contribution to ecclesial life for very genuine reasons. And in those circumstances, brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father's merciful and He understands. He's reasonable. He's merciful. He knows our frame, as the psalmist says, and he knows and understands our limitations. He knows that sometimes we simply cannot give a tithe in a certain form, and in such cases it can be redeemed. Uh, But before we relax and then say, ha, that's fine then. Hey, I can give my tithe in whatever form I like. We need to stop and remember that something else must be offered in its place. That's a very important principle of life. You know, it's just so easy for us, isn't it? If there's something that we can't do in the truth, to say, well, we couldn't be expected to do it for this reason. And we think no more about it. 
It's as if it's irrelevant for us. It doesn't exist. There's no way I could be expected to do it. And there we let the matter drop. The principle here in this little idea of redemption is that if we can't contribute in some way, then we find some other way in which we can. And what we do, brothers and sisters, is redeem our tithe. Effectively contribute something else in its place. So if we are blocked for unavoidable reasons, for supporting any aspect of ecclesial life that we know we really should, then let's diligently look for other ways in which we can make it up. And when we do, let's remember to add the fifth part to it as well, to put an extra effort, if we can, to support ecclesial life. Now, to understand that an Israelite really understood the principles that were involved here, the divine pen then turns its attention to something called, which we're, we're just using a phrase, substitution. Now, substitution here on the surface seems to be very similar. But in actual fact, we're going to find that it's quite, quite different. In fact, it was expressly forbidden. Substitution, brothers and sisters, is when we know what's due to God but for some reason we don't want to give it. We know what's due to God, but we don't like the cost. So in some rather sneaky way, we substitute for it something of inferior quality. We swap it over. We do something that's less valuable instead. So substitution is when we know what's required for God, but we decide that we don't want to give it. Now, in verse 32 and 33, there's a wonderful little section here. It's very interesting in the way it's put, and particularly it comes up in reference to animals because this idea of substitution was much more significant with animals than it was with crops. Now, there's a logical reason for that. Each animal is actually very valuable, isn't it, in its own right. You can take an animal and you assess an individual animal. You say, that's actually a very good lamb or a very poorly lamb, and each individual unit is assessed in its own right. When it comes to giving a tithe of the grain, well, simply it's a matter of getting the shovel and taking so many shovelfuls. It's just 10%. And there's no point in substituting one shovelful for another. But when it comes to looking at an animal, something from your flock, each animal is a unit in its, own, in its own right, and we look at it and we can assess its value. Now, the same basic principle applies with the flocks. As he says there, the tithe or the tenth is holy unto Yahweh. So the same absolute standard applies. So he says, verse 32, concerning the tithe, or the tenth of the herder of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth, or tithe, shall be holy unto Yahweh. Now this little phrase, whatsoever passeth under the rod, is an interesting one. It's actually a description of how they counted the sheep. So that in the morning, we understand how they keep the sheep in a sheepfold at night to keep them safe from wild animals. And in the morning, as the sheep left, the, uh, the shepherd would stand there with his rod, and he actually counted them as they came through the door. One, two, three. And he'd actually tap them or, or move his rod down upon them. Five, six, seven, eight. And he would count them as they actually left. So as he's taking his tithe, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's God's. Now, the point is, that process was entirely random. It's impossible to control which sheep it might be that decides to bolt through the opening of the doorway next. 
It's God's appointed way of ensuring that the tithe is a genuine representation. Because the tithe, of course, represents the whole. And the tithing had to be done in a selected way, according to God's appointment, just right. Now, can't you imagine the temptation? Seven, eight, nine. Oh, no, that's my best breeding ram. So you go seven, eight, nine, eleven, ten, twelve. You can imagine the temptation, can't you, brothers and sisters, to be rather selective in how the rod fell. And so the record says that they were not to, see the words there in verse 33, he shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy, it shall not be redeemed. And that would be a real test, wouldn't it, of the integrity of the Israelite. So we have a contrast here, brothers and sisters, between a a thankful and generous spirit, which is willing to give everything to God and rejoices in whatever it is that's selected by that numbering process, or a grudging mean spirit which resents having to give something good to God. Do we ever begrudge the time that we spend working in the truth? Do we ever hold back some of the tithe in our lives? Let's consider our own lives objectively. Let's take, take our tithe and hold it up to the light, as it were, and ask ourselves, what have we been giving to God? In our life, do we really give to God what belongs to Him? Or do we offer Him some shriveled, inferior thing in its place? Has the tithe been delivered? Or have I kept it back in my barn? Have I failed to deliver the tithe? Have I stolen from God? So Leviticus 27 here establishes these very basic principles uh, as far as the tithe is concerned. But now we're going to take our attention away from the law and we're going to divert it to a story that happened hundreds of years later. Because brothers and sisters, it's a story that picks up these principles here of the tithe and it applies them in an exceedingly powerful way. Because it takes these principles and it shows their effect on ecclesial life. Let's turn over to the book of Nehemiah. You know, the days of Nehemiah, brothers and sisters, had one of the most stirring spiritual revivals in Scripture. It's one of the most stirring times of spiritual revival that's actually recorded in the divine word for us. We know that Israel had gone through the tragedy of exile from their own land. The people had suffered beyond imagination. They'd been taken away into captivity. For 70 years, they had languished in captivity until the promise of God was fulfilled at the end of the 70 years, and he brought them back to the land. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. The first wave of Jews returned back to the land under uh, the the days of, uh, of, of Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, and Nehemiah. And through the faithful work of those prophets, they settled in the land. First of all, they established the the sacrifices. Then they built the temple of God. And then there was a, through the driving leadership of Nehemiah, there was a rebuilding of the walls of the city itself. So by the time that process finished, the structure again was intact. There were Jews back in the city of Jerusalem. There were walls around the city. There was a temple re-established, and the structure was there. 
Now, in Nehemiah chapter 8, brothers and sisters, we have a time when the people are gathered together uh, in in the city there uh, in front of Ezra, the prophet. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we find in Nehemiah 8 and verse 5 that Ezra opens the book in the sight of all the people. And this then starts the, the process of a, of a wonderful spiritual revival that took place at that time. And it's the turning of the hearts of the people back to their God, back to the book of the law. And we read in the rest of the chapter and over the page that they, they then keep a feast of tabernacles. And there's wonderful joy and gladness as this people rejoice in the goodness that God's given them, observing a feast of tabernacles back in the city which God has restored to them again. Having kept the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 9, the people gather together again. This time, they gather in fasting and sackcloth to seek their God. And brothers and sisters, we want to travel back in time and join them there. Join that company. Join that solemn assembly. And as we do, I'd like you to look around and observe the brothers and sisters in that scene in those days. See what they're wearing Look at their disposition. See what's written on their face. Feel the anguish and the pain in their hearts. Understand the intensity of the words and the longing that's expressed in them. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and they read in the book of the law of Yahweh their God one fourth part of the day, and another fourth part of the day they confessed and worshipped Yahweh their God. In verse 3 it says, brothers and sisters, that they read in the book of the law for a fourth part of the day. That's three solid hours. Have you ever sat down and spent three hours in one go reading from God's Word? Then it says that for the fourth part of a day, they confessed and worshipped Yahweh their God. That's another three hours. Have we ever spent three hours praying and worshipping and confessing to God? There's a very deep and intense a very personal commitment that's being conveyed by these words. And then, after six hours of preparation, the priests rise to their feet in verse 4 on behalf of the nation. And in the sight of Israel, they stand upon the stairs and they pray a wonderful prayer to Almighty God, pleading on behalf of of their brothers and sisters. And through this process, the hearts of the people are stirred up and they finish their prayer with a deep and earnest promise. They make a covenant and collectively they enter into a personal oath or a promise to God. And that's contained for us in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now, Nehemiah chapter 10, they give this commitment. In verses 29 to 31, it's a commitment to walk in God's law, a commitment to observe to do all his commandments, a commitment not to intermarry with the nations around, a commitment to keep the Sabbath day. 
Then in verses 32 to 39, they give a wholehearted commitment to support the worship, to come and personally contribute to the work of the tabernacle and to the work of worship. And so they commit to bring a whole list of things. Verse 32, they commit to bring the shekel. Verse 34, the wood. Verse 35, the first fruits. Verse 37, that we should bring the first fruits of our dough and our offerings and the fruit of all manner of trees, of wine, of oil, unto the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithes of our ground unto the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. And so stirred to their heart, brothers and sisters, they give a vow, they make a vow, they give a binding commitment that they will bring the tithe and contribute it to the Levites. And every aspect of the worship of the truth in those days needs their support, and they vow to give it. You know, in fact, in this wonderful scene, brothers and sisters, their dedication goes much further than just giving the vow of the tithe, the 10% of the grain and the wine and the oil. They understood that that tithe represented themselves. It wasn't just some mechanical transaction with some produce. And a wonderful reflection of that is the fact that in chapter 11, they decide that a tenth of the people will go and live in the city of Jerusalem to support the city. And that's one of the most wonderful examples in Scripture of the way in which the tithe transcends a bit of wheat or grapes. And they understand that it represents the giving of themselves personally. And so a tenth of the people willingly give themselves to go and dwell in the city of Jerusalem. It is a glorious example of the spirit of the tithe at work in the hearts and minds of these people. In fact, brothers and sisters, the response is so great that when we get to chapter 12, a whole new layer of officials had to be appointed specifically for the work of coping with all the influx of tithes that came flowing into the temple. So chapter 12, verse 44, we have a wonderful picture We read, And at that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasuries, for the offerings, for the firstfruits and for the tithes, to gather into them out of the fields of the cities the portions of the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. It's a wonderful example for us here in ecclesial life heartfelt appreciation. In fact, there was so much came flying through, they had to appoint these men to actually help carry it, as it says, from the fields into the chamber of the storehouse. So there were many men involved in the work of bringing this willing offering of the tithes from their brothers and sisters. Why was it so spontaneous? Why was it so generous? Why was there such a wonderful influx? Well, we have those glorious little words there at the end of verse 44, for Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. They were so appreciative. They were thrilled with the work that was being done that they responded with all their hearts. But the message of the tithe, brothers and sisters, is not about one-off heights of spirituality. It's about consistency. It's not the size of the tithe that matters, it's reliability. Faithfully, consistently bringing the tithe year by year, person by person, each doing their own bit. And the question was, would this spirit of fervor actually last? Nehemiah, the driving force behind this scene, had to return back to the city 
in Persia. We're not sure how long he was gone, but there's a very large gap between the beginning and the end part of Nehemiah chapter 13. We believe the gap is somewhere between 12 and 20 years. It would also appear that sometime early in that time period, Ezra passed off the scene because he was a very old man. So the truth's been established. The house of God has been built. The walls of the city have been completed. Worship has been established again. And then their leader had to go off into a far country to visit the king. In his absence, would the work continue on? How reliable was it going to be? Would that process of growth and restoration be maintained? Now, you know, brothers and sisters, that's the issue for us today, isn't it? It's not the building of the temple. It's not the building of the wall. It's not the decision to make that mighty vow, although all those things are absolutely essential. The real test for you and me, brothers and sisters, is our consistency in life our consistency in our work of the truth, the consistency of our commitment to the things of God. And it's in that area that the battle for our ecclesias is being fought today. In many countries, in a way, there has been to some extent, hasn't there, a revival of the truth in the last 30 or 40 years through the work of things like Bible schools, the encouragement of of Bible study, the development of Bible students in all sorts of different centres and and countries around the world. And whereas, and this is particularly the case in our country, whereas 30 years ago many of the young people left the truth, today many, not all, but many of the young people come into the truth. We have many blessings. The fact that we're sitting here in such a wonderful atmosphere of fellowship is a proof of that. We have many blessings. But what happens next? And the question for each of us, really, brothers and sisters, is the same as it was in the period after Nehemiah left Jerusalem and returned to Persia. Our Lord Jesus Christ has gone into a far country. Are we personally, each of us, as an individual, motivated to continue the work of the truth? Or do we go along for the ride? just as strong as the environment which we rejoice in together. Perhaps we're happy enough to benefit from a strong environment whilst it's there, but do we have the zeal and the commitment in our own home ecclesias to maintain that and to keep the light of the truth burning in our master's absence? And there are some very challenging questions for each of us in the continuing sections of the story of Nehemiah. Now, in the absence of Nehemiah, brothers and sisters, we pick up the threads of the story in chapter 13 with the story of Eliashib. Now, Eliashib was the high priest. He had originally participated in the building of the wall. But it's significant to note that he is not listed amongst those who sealed the covenant. He's not one of those who was named as being involved in the reading out of the law. He's not named in the triumphal procession around the top of the wall at the dedication of the wall. Eliashib, brothers and sisters, appears to be one of those people who often stand aside in ecclesial work when there's work to be done. Perhaps the scorner who criticizes the efforts of the ecclesia, who doesn't put his back to the work. Sometimes in ecclesial life there are people who sneer at the work 
and who lose no opportunity to criticize those who are trying to uphold the principles of truth. Now, this man, Eliashib, was unable to stand in the way when Nehemiah was in full flight. But he was not personally committed to the principles that Nehemiah upheld. He saw no personal need to maintain those standards once Nehemiah was gone. And in ecclesial life, it is possible to come across those who do want to relax the standards of the truth rather than improve them. Very happy to see the standards and principles of the truth relaxed whenever it's possible. You see, the key issue, brothers and sisters, was Eliashib the high priest didn't believe in the need to be separated from the things of the world. But the problem with this story is that Eliashib ended up in a position of influence. God help the ecclesial environment, brothers and sisters, where people rise to influence who don't understand the need for separation from the world. In verse 4, we're told that Eliashib had the oversight of the chambers of the house of God. High priest, he was the man in charge. Now, in ecclesial life in those days, the role of looking after chambers was very important. It is today. The chambers into which brothers and sisters faithfully contribute their tithe. Earlier in the book, in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 28, we read that the people actually separated themselves to make the vow. Interesting phrase. So here's a whole community, brothers and sisters, who separate themselves to make a vow. Yet here was a man in a position of authority who didn't appreciate the need to be separate from the world. He didn't agree with that as a principle of life. And he was happy to go out and take elements of the world and bring it into the household of God. What an irony in this story. Nehemiah built a wall, brothers and sisters, to keep people like Sanballat and Tobiah out of the house. And here we have a record of a man who brought Tobiah into the house. Eliashib saw a man such as Tobiah as having good qualities. I don't know, perhaps Eliashib saw himself as being more balanced, more reasonable, more approachable than the distasteful extremism of Nehemiah. He obviously thought Tobiah was a good chap. You know, after all, Tobiah's name does mean Yah is good. Tobiah is a nice fellow. He's obviously a good man. Obviously, Tobiah is no threat. He's described in chapter 2 as being a servant. Tobiah is subservient. He's meek. He's friendly. Tobiah is my friend. And so in verse 4 it says, Before this, Eliashib the high priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And the word allied there means a close friendship or a kinship. He married into the family. Warm, friendly with Tobiah. Now, brothers and sisters, what happens? What happens in ecclesial life when we start to compromise that principle of separation from the world and we bring its ways into ecclesial life? Well, the entire process of life and the truth begins to unravel. You know, it's interesting, the temple, the temple roof doesn't suddenly blow off. The walls don't suddenly collapse in an instance and all of their own accord. But it's much more subtle than that. 
If we start to compromise our separation from the world, what happens? Well, it becomes apparent in our tithe. It becomes apparent in our zeal and commitment and contributions to God's work. Now, to make the point really stark, just so obvious, brothers and sisters, that we can't help falling over it as we read through the record, the record tells us in that verse that we just read that Eliashib prepared a chamber in the house of God for his friend. Brothers and sisters, Tobiah was an Ammonite. Remember the law? An Ammonite, a Moabite, shall not enter into the house of God to the 10th generation. And this high priest didn't just bring the Ammonites in, he set up a place for the man to live in the house of God, in a chamber. But it wasn't any place, brothers and sisters, it wasn't any chamber, it's described as being a great chamber. To be precise, it was the chamber where they stored the tithes. Look at verse 5. And he had prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, the porters, and the offerings of the priests. Brothers and sisters, this was evil. Nehemiah describes it in verse 7 as being this evil which Eliashib did. The amazing thing is, Eliashib obviously didn't believe it was evil. He saw it as being reasonable, being friendly. Tobiah's my friend. Tobiah's interested in the truth. His name means Yah is good. Nehemiah, you're the sort of chap that makes it hard for thoroughly decent people like Tobiah to be associated with the tabernacle. Can't you see that Tobiah's interested in the tabernacle? He's interested, all right. It was free real estate. And the ability of the house of God, brothers and sisters, to receive the tithes, the capacity to receive the tithes and store them up and then distribute them to the contributions for the work of the truth is then filled, as it describes it, with the household stuff of Tobiah. So the tithes dried up. The contribution for the Levites is clearly no longer seen as being important. So no portions were available for the Levites. So the Levites had to flee to their fields. So the work of the truth stopped, and the entire religious worship, the structure of worship in Israel, collapsed. It just was completely destroyed. Why? Simply because the spiritual leader brought the influence of the world inside the chamber of the house of God. But if you stood on the outside, brothers and sisters, you'd see the walls still standing there, the roof was still on, the building was still there in its pristine beauty, but it was an empty shell because the individual tithe had dried up and all the work of restoration, all the building, all the efforts, all the tears, all the prayers, all the vows, the work of two generations came to an end. Why? Because the world was allowed into the ecclesia and the contribution of the tithe dried up. 
Now, brothers and sisters, it was into that desperate scene that Malachi the prophet came marching. Let's turn over to Malachi chapter 3. Girded as a prophet, he strides in and he stands there looking at Israel. He gazes upon all of Judah who's gathered together around them and he rebukes them and he pleads with them on God's behalf. Malachi 3 verse 8. We read, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, you're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. As Rotherham puts it, will a man of earth and Adam rob God, almighty God? And when the prophet comes in and asks this question, the people are offended. They look at him in, in hurt and disbelief. How, how have we robbed God, they ask. And he says, in tithes and offerings, thunders the prophet. Remember those words, brothers and sisters, of Leviticus 27? He said, all the tithe is is Yahweh's. It is holy to Yahweh. And it belongs to him, whether it's delivered or not. If we hold back our contributions from from, from the work of the truth, and we keep them in our own personal lives, understand, brothers and sisters, they still belong to God. They're still his. They are Yahweh's. It is holy or separate, says these principles of the law. It simply means that we've robbed from God. And the prophet says to them very strong words. He said, therefore you are cursed with a curse because you've robbed God. But then the spirit of his words changes. Verse 10. And you can see a pleading element come in. And he turns and he pleads with these people on behalf of Almighty God. He says to his brothers and sisters, bring the tithes. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house or food in my house. Prove me. Go on, says God. Test me. Try me. Bring those tithes and see if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And you can feel the beseeching intensity of those words, the pathos, as God is saying, Please bring that tithe into my house. Go and try me. Just test me and see how I will respond. I'd like us just to concentrate on one word there in verse 10. Bring ye the tithe that there may be meat or food as it brings in mine house. Brothers and sisters, that's what the tithe's all about, isn't it? About there being food in God's house food to strengthen others, food to feed the priests, food to be able to sustain the worship and the teaching of the truth, food for all comers to that house. And here are these tragic words. When God's pleading, saying, please, let there be some food in my house. In your mind, brothers and sisters, picture a hungry and emaciated priest who stood there waiting He's standing forlornly before his God in a house that's empty of food because all Israel has stopped contributing the tithe. So the door of the storehouse swings idly in the breeze. The interior is swept clean. Every last crust is gone. The priest, with dull eye, weakened with hunger, scanning an empty horizon, just hoping in his heart that somebody will bring the tithe and bring some food. But at last, in desperation, he has to consider his own starving family, his own wasted frame. And finally, the heartbroken priest turns his back on the house of God. He has to flee for his life to his own field, 
and there he ekes out a meager existence in poverty. And the house of God falls silent. The voice of prayer is stilled. The smoke of the sacrifices drifts away. And the silence of the grave falls upon a deserted building. Why? Because every Israelite failed to bring their bunch of grapes or their sheaf of wheat. There was a famine in the house of God because individual Israelites didn't bring their personal contribution. Now, brothers and sisters, we are part of the temple of God. As Paul says, ye are the temple of the living God. Every temple has a storehouse or a treasury for the tithes. It didn't matter whether it was the glory of the splendor of the temple built by Solomon or the humbleness of the small temple built in the return in the days of Nehemiah. Every temple has a storehouse, and so do we, and so do our ecclesias. The question for us is, what's in the storehouse? What's in our personal storehouse? What's in yours? What's in mine? Is there food in God's house? Is there food to sustain the work of the truth? The food that God's house is desperately in need of today is God's word, isn't it? Food to sustain the work of the ecclesia. The bread of life. The words of Amos 8 verse 11, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord Yahweh, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. Now, we need to note very carefully, brothers and sisters, that the responsibility for bringing the tithe was not the responsibility of the Levites. It was not something that was left to the leaders of Israel to do. It's our responsibility as Israelites together in the household of God. The bringing of a tithe, brothers and sisters, is a personal responsibility that every single one of us here this morning has. Now, what's the food for us to provide in God's house today? Well, the spirit of the tithe, brothers and sisters, is for every one of us to be daily studying God's word now. That's the food provided for the household of God. So let every one of us assess our own personal commitment to God's word, the food which he has given us. And we ask ourselves the question, am I reading and studying the word of God daily? Am I keen in the Word? Do I love it? Do I thrill to it? Am I able to glean from it food to support myself and my family and the ecclesia? Or is there famine in the house of God today? This isn't just a question of personal development. This is a process, brothers and sisters, of keeping the house of God alive. And these days, often, there is a famine in the house of God We need to hear those words of Almighty God pleading with us, with each of us, brothers and sisters. He says, let there be food in my house. Now, brothers and sisters, if the word of God is not our daily habit, and we all know, we all know in our heart, every one of us, whether the word of God is our daily habit and delight. If the word of God is not our daily habit, then something else is. It's the stuff of Tobiah. If the daily reading and meditation on the word of life, our food, has not become part of our individual lives, then something else has taken its place. That's the stuff 
of Tobiah, whatever it is. And if we're not daily taking up the food of God's Word, it's because we've filled our storehouse with something else. Brothers and sisters, there's a desperate need for us today to make sure that there is food in God's house. And it, brings, it begins with each one of us bringing our tithe. Now, back in Nehemiah 13, we won't turn back to it, but when Nehemiah returned, he found that storehouse full of the stuff of Tobiah. And we're told in verse 8 that it grieved him in his heart. It grieved him in his heart. And so he says, I cast therefore all the stuff, or the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. And we've got this picture of Nehemiah getting in there and he grabs all the household stuff of Tobiah and he heaves it out onto the street. You say, whoo, isn't that a bit violent? Isn't that a bit extreme? Uh, Isn't that rather uncivilized, perhaps even slightly ungodly? Brothers and sisters, if Tobiah's stuff is cluttering our house, then we need to take extreme measures. We need to personally assess our own lives and heave Tobias' stuff out onto the street and instead fill that storehouse with the things of God's word. Brothers and sisters, there is an urgent need for us to ensure that there is food in God's house today, food to nourish the hungry Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Thank you, Brother Mark, for your words this morning. Indeed, you have given us many lessons from God's Word to consider that each of us needs to uh, take into our hearts as we continue our service to our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, our third class is scheduled to begin at 11 a.m., so I'd ask that we be in our seats a couple minutes before that to uh, afford our brother Nigel the time. Thank you.